This episode is brought to you by Legalite Horizons. Are you looking to create a life you love? Legalite Horizons is a new model which gives principal level lawyers the platform to grow their practice and personal brand, all while being fully supported. You'll join a recognised, award-winning firm and have access to support staff, existing infrastructure and systems, one-on-one mentoring, and still get to keep the lion's share of what you bill. If you're looking for freedom and flexibility to practice the way you want, get in touch for a confidential discussion. Visit legalite.com.au forward slash horizons. We decided to go paperless from day one, which was, in hindsight, a great decision, although it ha- has had its challenges. So we've got a kind of a range of systems, although none of them are especially high tech. It's more about a cultural shift internally and also trying to train the third parties that we deal with. So clients love dealing with us electronically. There are one or two, perhaps one or two percent who prefer to receive by post and that's fine, we can do that. But the big challenge, I think, is that we deal with lawyers who can't understand that service by email is still service. The amount of times we get asked for our fax number just drives me up the wall. And being asked, why don't you have a fax number? My team's very patient in answering that question politely, but I don't think it deserves a polite answer. (laughs) Really, I think the answer should be because it's not 1980. You're listening to Doing Law Differently. Join me, Lucy Dickens, as I explore how the world's most progressive legal service providers are doing law differently. Hi everyone, Lucy Dickens here. You're listening to the Doing Law Differently podcast. Today I'm joined by Nick Mann, who is the founder and principal of Polaris Lawyers. Polaris Lawyers was formed in 2017 with a vision to reframe the way that personal injury advocacy was offered in Victoria. Nick's vision is to create the most client-centric personal injury firm in Australia. It's a big goal, but as you'll hear in the interview, he's put quite a lot of things in place to help him achieve the goal. The interview's a little bit on the longer side, but as quite often happens with me in these interviews, I get carried away in listening to all the gold and wonderful things that the guests are willing to share with us, so I just had to keep digging a little bit further. I'll press play now. Enjoy. Hi, Nick. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. I understand your vision with Polaris is to create the most client-centric personal injury firm in Australia, which is a pretty cool and nice, bold statement. So I'm interested to understand what drives that vision. Great. So Polaris has been up and running for three years now, and I started the firm with a sense of what we wanted to achieve and a sense of that vision, but without having really spelled it out. And it was probably about 18 months ago that our growing team sat down to look at what our values were and what we really wanted to deliver to clients and what we wanted to deliver to the industry more broadly. And the idea that we were client-centric was something that came through really strongly. We knew from day one that we only ever want to practice in personal injury and the service that we were delivering to clients up until that point was really a genuine shift from the big firm experience we'd previously had. But putting that out into the world, kind of saying that out loud feels very ambitious, but it also feels it has the ring of truth for us. And just today we sat down with our team and went through our goals for the year and looked at that vision again and said, you know, is this something we want to recommit to as it stands? And I feel really proud of being able to say that we can 
and we do want to maintain that vision. But the way that we deliver it is it really in two aspects. One is to put ourselves in the shoes of the client. And I understand that there's a lot of design thinking and legal design work going on at the moment. I see large firms of all stripes starting to speak the language of client centricity. So I'm aware that that's something which is which the law is catching up on, at least as far as lip service goes. But for us, it means thinking about the client's experience and thinking about where the clients come from and looking at the barriers to them engaging with a firm full stop. Yes. And then what are the pain points for them as they go through a personal injury claim? So how do you understand that? Do you do a design thinking type workshop exercise? Do you do customer service journey mapping? How do you put yourself in their shoes and try and understand what those things might be for them? So to begin with, we did some client journey mapping and we realised that we didn't have a good enough sense of what people outside the legal community might think about personal injury lawyers and what their reticence might be to engaging in a claim. And so the project for us very, very early on was to go out and speak to at least five non-lawyers. Brilliant. And ask them what they thought about personal injury law, about personal injury lawyers, and really just seek to obtain as much information as we could. Now, that, that stuff is anecdotal. And we've come from big firms where all of that data was freely available and kind of not used in any meaningful way, which is a shame. But having started a boutique firm, we have the time and the inclination to think about the client's experience, but not the data at that kind of scale. So we have to think laterally about how we obtain it. And then as we've grown and as our client base has grown, we've gone to really simple methods to try and understand how clients want to engage with us. So, for instance, one of the key questions that we always ask new clients is, how would you like to communicate with us? Mm -hmm. We're a paperless firm, so our preference is email. And the overwhelming majority of people would prefer to receive email advice from us rather than by post. But I think just the fact of asking that question is important. We've also gone through a a client survey process recently where we got some great feedback from clients, really interesting feedback about their experience to date, but also about their appetite for new technologies or being engaged with in a different way, which leads us to try new things, to offer different ways of engaging with clients. The last thing I'd say about all that is I think a good example of the way that we kind of got out of our own bubble was that... We drafted a cost agreement for personal injury clients, which looked like every other firm's. It was Mm -hmm. 25 pages of legalese. And the way that they're drafted makes them look like you've got something to hide. And one of the key issues that people came back to us with was that they didn't understand no win, no fee agreements in personal injury. And they felt like there was some trick or trap in this. Mm -hmm. And so we committed ourselves to scrapping it and starting again and writing the most plain English document we could. And what we're able to do is come up with a seven or eight page plain English contract, plain English document, which sets out the client's rights and entitlements and in as simply as we can, gives them an expectation about what's going to happen in the case and how costs are going to work. And then what we went and did was mum tested it. So my mother's not a lawyer. I took it to her and said, I want you to read this and I want you to say whatever is on your mind about it. And she came back to me with some really interesting kind of perspectives, things which I'd never picked up in the agreement or in the way that we use language as lawyers, which she said made it sound like there was something to hide. So kind of getting rid of those linguistic 
barriers I think has been really important for us as well. Mum testing, that's pretty cool. I like that idea. I must say that's the first time I've heard of that, but I totally get it. Like you say, giving it to somebody who is outside the profession, who could well be one of your clients. I mean, I hope she's not been injured, but she's not your client, but she could well be. You know, she's outside the profession, I guess, is the key. There are two ways to approach a document like that. Mm. And one of them is to take the contract and to hand it to your lawyers or to, you know, to your cost experts or to a friend in the law. Inevitably, what they'll do is write a document which is as protective of you and them as possible. Mm -hmm. And that delivers nothing to the client. That's no longer a document that's about them. That's a document that's about you and your own professional indemnity. So that's a very traditional way of approaching this problem. And the other way is to take it to, I, I hate to say it, but real people, people outside the law, people who are much more reflective of our client base, And to say, well, what do you think of it? And to back ourselves to have a strong enough relationship with those clients as we go that we don't need to rely on the contractual fine print. Yes. That we say this is the value of, this is the value of the principle of the document and that holds together, that's held together by the relationship with them. So um, I know this sounds like small stuff for um, particularly for people outside the law, to have a plain English contract. But for us, it's, you know, it's a big deal because it's well away from what we've learned and what we've trained in. It is a big deal. And it's an example of a different way of tackling what is a common problem. It's pretty well known that the starting point, at least the stereotype for lawyers, is that people cannot trust them. So often that is the starting point when new clients come to us if they don't know us particularly. And if they're coming to us with a problem that they feel like somebody else has imposed on them. You know, if it's if it's not, I didn't cause this problem, I guess if they've been injured might be a great example. You know, it's someone else's fault as opposed to coming for what might, you know, I don't know, an estate planning or something that might be more of a constructive type arrangement but they come to us with this lack of trust and there are several different ways we can try and deal with that and I think your one is a really really interesting idea especially when you're you're offering them something that they don't perceive as the norm no win no fee they instantly say well what's the hidden trap what am I missing here where's the small print I think that's right and the compounding factor for a lot of our clients is that they've already been let down by people that they're vulnerable to mm. so or in their perception at least mm. um and so uh if clients are injured in motor vehicle accidents you have very little expectation of other drivers i think although you have probably a misplaced sense of your own safety but for clients who come to us who are injured following medical treatment or for a workers compensation claim they've placed this huge amount of trust in their doctor or in their employer and they feel let down And so they come to us at this point of vulnerability. And so there is this critical moment at which we can either double the vulnerability, which is to say um, we engage on our terms and you come with us or you don't, or um, or we actually engage and empower those clients and help to kind of slowly rebuild some of that trust in a professional, professional service. But the other part of that is that this is an optional process for them in personal injury. Everybody says, I need to have a valid will, or if they're probably a better example is conveyancing. There's no option there. You need someone to do your conveyancing. But there is there's a really big latent market in personal injury. So if you think about how big this segment of the, the legal profession is, 
and how big that market is. There's research out there which says that six or seven out of ten people with a potential personal injury claim never engage a lawyer. Wow. So there is this, as big as Morris Blackburn and Slater and Gordon and all the large firms are and the market that we all make up, that probably represents at best about 40% of the potential markets of what's happening with the other six out of ten potential clients. So we have to look differently at how we approach potential clients and engage with them. I understand as part of the way that you operate is to make information freely available. And I know you've got some automated services that I'll ask you to tell us about, but is part of that to try and provide more access to your services for that huge part of the market who just are going without? Yeah, absolutely. So we do home visits to clients as a matter of course, wherever we think we can, we're can, we going to be able to assist them. So we have a preliminary phone conversation with them, which is free. And we send out some information to them and then we get out on the road to see them. So our lawyers are very commonly on the road seeing clients wherever they want to see us. Mm-hmm. I gave advice a few months ago in a Nando's. It's not my preference, but <laughs> it was where the client felt comfortable and you know we got some great hot chips as well. But the point is it's wherever they want to wherever they want to get yeah. advice from us. And then online, I think historically what's happened is law firms have said to themselves, well, we have intellectual property in all of this information, which determines whether a person might have a claim. And so the best way for us to maximize our market share is to say we'll hold that until the person contacts us. And then we'll say to them, come into the city, into our office, and then we'll tell you whether you have a claim. And pay us. Don't forget to pay us. Exactly, yeah. Well, or to engage with us on a no, no fee agreement. Oh, yeah, or well, that, sorry. Yeah. Whatever, whatever way, yes. But, yes, let's hook you in in this way before we give you the information. By dint of the, in part of our attitude, but also by dint of the fact that we are a very small firm and intend on remaining a small firm, we can't operate like that. And so instead we would rather say here is all the information, here's as much of the information as we can meaningfully give to a general audience about TAC claims about the Centrelink implications of your compensation, whatever it might be, so that they can then make a decision to go ahead because I'm actually really proud of the work that we do. The main problem that I think we have as personal injury lawyers is reputation and some of that is earned and some of it's not. But as long as we can use that information and put that information out there to bust myths about the profession and the practice and also bring in a claim, then... I mean, the better off we are. And so some of that's automated. Some of it's old-fashioned kind of blogging, but also we're looking at the way that we hand that information out to clients. So wherever we can chop up slabs of text and turn them into something that is more palatable or visually engaging for clients than we're our prospective clients, then we do that. I think the other part of that as well is that clients aren't comparing necessarily your law firm to the one next door. They're also comparing their engagement with you to their engagement with any other business in any other profession or industry and where the rest of the world is happy to provide lots of information and assistance before you've handed over the money or signed the engagement. Law typically doesn't do that. So when clients come across a firm that says, I'm not going to tell you anything or answer your phone call or give you any information until you pay me or sign my scope, sign my retainer, then that trust thing becomes an issue again. I guess it's I guess the trust issue is heightened. 
Absolutely. You don't even need to compare our industry to other professional services, to accountants, for instance. You can compare us to um, your local hairdresser. You move to a new suburb and you want a haircut. Mm -hmm. You can get online and find out how much it costs and you can book an appointment and you can come away. You can see the reviews from other people who've had that service. So it's kind of strange that if you think about us in the context of engaged consumers that are out there, that we wouldn't want to tell you we wouldn't want to come to you or we wouldn't want to confirm when you're going to have an appointment. We wouldn't want to tell you how much it's going to cost. Mm. Imagine if you called a hairdresser and they said, or, you know, any other professional service, and they said it'll be somewhere between 50 and $500. Yep. The range is actually absurd. Like you've told that person nothing. And I think we are capable, even in difficult cases as a profession, of properly scoping out the work. Mm. But in parts of the industry where we operate at volume, we're either out of habit or we're not thinking about those individual cases enough to be able to properly quote the work or tell the client how long it might take or how much they might receive. I think in a lot of cases, some lawyers see the timed billing or the I'm not going to scope it or just it will be what it will be as the easy route because they don't have to put in the brain power and figuring it out in advance of the engagement. I think that's a barrier for a lot of people is that they want to be paid for that time and they're not being paid for that time so they just go down the traditional services route. I think that's right, Lucy, but I also think there's another component to it which is that we as lawyers are trained wherever possible not to be wrong. So we get paid by getting it right. And so why would we put ourselves up against the wall with a particular quote or pin ourselves to a particular quote or time period if there's a possibility that that's going to be wrong? And so across the profession, you see that we're risk averse and there's some terrific benefits to having a profession which is heavily regulated and risk averse. But one of the downsides is that we're reluctant to give much meaningful information to clients just in case we're wrong. And so we're, we're not habituated to think carefully about those cases and also be prepared to say, you know, this is how much it's going to cost or this is how long it's going to take. I had an inquiry just last week from someone who had spoken to another law firm and absolutely would have gone to that law firm. The advice was, it wasn't bad advice. It was probably about right. But when it came to asking about how much the compensation was going to be and how much the costs were going to be, the advice had these huge ranges in it. So the client came away saying, I just feel that the range is so large that I could end up being $200,000 up or $50,000 down. It's too uncertain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We recognise that as a big barrier to engagement for personal injury clients at the very least. Feeling inspired but unsure how to translate that inspiration into change in your firm? Or maybe you have ideas to shake up your business, but you're having a hard time implementing them. Well, I can help. After 10 years leading law firm development and change, I'm now helping others to do the same. My coaching programs are designed to help you redesign your business to create a simple but significant and sustainable business that will skyrocket your success. Let me help you do law differently. Visit lucydickens.com.au forward slash coach to find out more. On another topic, I know that you're a paperless office and you've said that you use some cloud-based software to run your business. So I'm sure people will be interested to learn a bit more about that. What does paperless look like for you and what technology are you using to run the business? We decided to go paperless from day one, which was in hindsight a great decision, although it has had its challenges. 
we use practice management system called Action Step after yep. shopping around quite a few different practice management systems. I think a lot of them are well set up now to offer you cloud-based management. Mm. And then for our our phone systems, we use so VoIP system. Yes. And uh, Microsoft Teams for internal chat and that kind of thing. So we've got a kind of a range of systems, although none of them are especially high tech. It's more about a cultural shift internally mm-hmm. and also trying to train the third parties that we deal with. So clients love dealing with us electronically. There are one or two, perhaps one or two percent who prefer to receive by post, and that's fine. We can do that. But the big challenge, I think, is that we deal with lawyers who can't understand that service by email is still service. Is that still a problem? I feel like this has been a challenge for years. We're still dealing with this. (laughs) (laughs) I I keep overhearing people saying, well, this needs a wedding signature, which is, you know, and I know for a fact in that case it's not required, but that's changing. And I think the profession is starting to understand the multiple benefits of being paperless and also the leadership shown by the courts too. So we work in exclusively in Victoria and in Victoria, the county court, Supreme Court and Federal Court Registry there too either all allow for online filing or are, or are heading towards completely paperless. Yes. So having that kind of institutional support is helpful. The big issue for us is in dealing with doctors. So we request medical records as part and parcel of a compensation claim and the amount of times we get asked for our fax number just drives me up the wall and being asked why don't you have a fax number my team's very patient in answering that question politely but I don't think it deserves a polite answer (laughs) really I think the answer should be because it's not 1980. And surely if they're medical records they're probably sending you big stacks of paper they're not just sending you one or faxing you one or two pages would they? No sometimes they're sending us thousands of pages exactly the public hospitals are much better than the than the private doctors in the main so we're just scanning all those documents in and saving them to our our system which has mm-hmm. all the all the backup and um, security that we need you know we're mindful of the fact that we're dealing with clients health records too so of course we have to be conscious of that from a from a, a security standpoint but the benefits that it delivers are enormous Part of those are in reducing overheads. So I'm aware that there are large firms out there that will spend millions of dollars a year on archiving, just on shed. And paying for storage, yeah. Storage, exactly. Not even on the labour that's incurred in Jane Smith would like her file back from archives. That There's labour in that. There's, There's ongoing cost in that too. But just on the storage, we can move to an office, which is big enough for us and our, our computers, and we don't have to think about the wall of papers that are coming with us. But the other big benefit for us, I think, Lucy, is that we've been able to really tailor our offering to staff as far as remote work in a much more substantial way. And in other firms, I know remote work is something which is, which is offered, but the reality on the ground is, well, there's paperwork here, which is only here in physical form and you don't have access to the full system online. We've attracted staff, are happy to come into the office a day or two a week, but really don't want to be making the commute every day. When they're out seeing clients, they're seeing them in their local area anyway. And so the advantage for them in being able to log in and have just as much information as they would have if they were in the office is 
huge. Mm -hmm. And it also reduces your overheads as well if you're not having to have all your staff pay for office space for all of your staff every day. But I'm glad you mentioned team because that's another of the things I wanted to ask you about. And you touched on this right at the beginning when you spoke about how you sat down with your team to work out the values and then later that you did some goal setting exercises with them. I'm interested to understand what that looks like. You've told me before that you help your team members to develop their own goals. I'm assuming you mean KPIs, or do you? Perhaps I should ask you, do you also mean KPIs within that? And I'd love to know how that looks within your firm. Yeah, absolutely. So they are encouraged to set their own KPIs. Great. And there's not there's not a dollar figure budget put on their head, but it's not some kind of socialistic utopia either we're a small business and we recognize <laughs> and the team members recognize the financial realities of running a small business it's easier to have that conversation honestly with them when they can see that we're not wasting money on huge city offices yeah. or that they can see that we're being cautious with the overheads mm-hmm. our main expenditure is on team like that's our investment and in a personal injury firm we own nothing except expertise we deliver so it's right that the big investment is there and then having invested so heavily in having great team members why wouldn't we encourage them to kind of contribute to to what the firm looks like the vision and the mission that we set the why does the firm exist is not something that i put to my team as an open question I don't think that's fair. I started the firm and I started it for a good reason and I want to explain that to them. But the people that join our team now, the staff who join our team, share the values that we have. And so we revisit that from time to time. Just like today, we revisited that as a way of saying, let's all you know, make any changes that we want to make to these to these, the way we express these values, but then recommit to them. And then what happens as a result of that is that the goals that we set for the year are all linked to the values and the vision that we have. So if someone says, I think we want to have, we want to try this new method of communicating with clients, unless that sits in our values, unless that is somehow going to contribute to the way that we demonstrate our values to clients or reaching our vision, then it doesn't make the cut. That's still a work in progress. We're not perfect at that. Last year, we had a couple of ideas, things that we wanted to try and goals that we set. And we got towards the end of the year and said, we've reached that goal, but actually, what did that do for our team or for our clients? And how did that link to our values? And so we're refining that process as we go. But I think we're getting to a point where there are eight of us now at Polaris. Everybody makes a contribution to the way that we set those goals. Mm. From a financial perspective, as I said, I'm honest with the team about what we need to do for the firm to grow and flourish. But they recognise that, you know, if we want to put on, get a larger office or put on another staff member, whatever the case may be, that there's a link between that and, and the results that are brought in. But... We're in lockstep with the clients at the end of the day. We don't get paid unless the client's cases succeed. So I'd rather have the team set a goal around how many successful results they can get and let the money flow from that than to say your budget is half a million dollars. Yeah. I think that's a better way to look at it. And they have a lot more buy-in and engagement in the whole process when they're able to work out those bigger picture goals for themselves. We recently, in fact, just 
last week did a similar thing with our firm where I sat down with each practice area, the teams in each practice area, and we did a similar exercise. We looked at what's working well, what the development areas, and we together set, or they more like it, I just sort of facilitated, but set the goals for the next six to 12 months. What is it that we want to achieve? And we did actually set financial goals in all of the work groups, actually, we set financial goals, but we set them as team goals as opposed to saying you as an individual must bill. And we kind of spoke about how as a team we could work together to bring in more work or to change the way the balance sheet looks, I suppose. That's a really good way of approaching it too, is to say in order to grow and thrive, here's the number we need to reach as a group. I think that's a really, really interesting way of going about it. The follow-up part of that is really key too. In the past... I've dreaded doing performance reviews. You know, you get to the end of the 12 months and do people meet their goals? People come to you with a stress and an expectation about demonstrating their performance over the last 12 months. And it's all in retrospect. It's too late. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Good managers will have had that conversation along the way. But if you're in a large firm, you'll see just as many good as bad managers and some staff won't have had the conversation at all. So in fact, we moved away from annual performance reviews and instead we do a monthly check in with a team member mm-hmm. and they're well aware of the goals they're well aware of the goals that they've set and we've well they've helped to set them together. so they yeah exactly and so then the question is what's going well for you yes what do you need to improve yes. what are you going to do differently and then what are we going to do to support that and it's just so much more a constructive conversation because in month 1 if one if someone's not getting making any shift towards their yearly goals then we've got the opportunity to correct that. We're not waiting for 12 months and then saying, oh, you didn't get there. So we've had really good feedback to that too. Although that's still, you know, that's something that we need to keep working at as we grow. What was good when we were, what worked well when there were three of us, it's not going to work well when there's 15 of us. It's all part of the journey, I suppose, isn't it? And and I guess part of it would be, your role in managing that and whether other people join in in managing that. But I think the point is that you've identified that the traditional way is not the best way for your firm. And so how are you going to adopt some different practices and how will that look within your business? Absolutely. And, you know, I was just reflecting on this before, but there's a sense, I think, that in order to kind of practice law differently or to have a change the legal landscape, we need a lot of high tech. Yeah. None of the stuff that we've talked about with Polaris and the way that we operate relies on a huge, on AI or it doesn't rely on huge tech. So I think new tech is part of the answer potentially, but there are a whole bunch of ideas. If you look outside the profession or if you shift the focus, which are actually old technology that require a change in mindset more than a change in technology or a cultural shift more than any fancy gadgets. When we opened Polaris, one of the first things I did was went up to the to this legal tech conference with a lawyer who just joined me and I was rubbing my hands together. I thought, this is going to be great. I find all this amazing legal tech and we're going to bring it back and apply it for our clients. And, you know, walking through that, like the marketplace, none of this is actually really going to work. And I, I despaired a bit at first because I thought, well, what's the legal tech? What's this fancy stuff we're going to buy that's going to make it all different? But the most game-changing stuff that Polaris has applied has been low-tech has actually just been about stopping and thinking about how we're practising and being committed to shifting and being committed to learning. 
and by the sounds of it, how that impacts on people, whether they be your staff or your customers. It's funny that you say that about the technology because I had I was having the exact same thoughts today and I was thinking about how quite often on this podcast I say, it's not about technology and technology isn't the starting point and all that kind of thing. Because I do, I have that conversation a lot and I thought I've probably built a name for myself as some anti-tech person, which is not actually the truth. I've actually got a stake in a business that creates practice management software that I've helped to design. I love technology, but it never comes first. It's always much further down the list. And I think it's easy to get carried away with the hype and the excitement about the buzzwords. But when it really comes down to it, it's the people piece that makes the most difference to the way that we practice law and change our businesses. Yeah. And I think it's hard for the people who are standing at those stands at legal tech conferences to kind of commoditize that. It's not a piece that you can license. <laughs> I know I sound too, you know, very skeptical about legal tech too. And that's not the case. I mean, we've introduced legal tech and some stuff which we feel is cutting edge that we know, you know, other people in the industry are looking at and copying and that we feel yeah. really proud of. But the times that we've failed in that have been the times where we've gone away from what matters to the clients. And we've developed some internal tech there was a project that we worked on for months which went nowhere and when we looked back at it we did an after action review we looked back at what went wrong and why what went wrong was that we weren't thinking about how it would materially benefit the client we were looking at an internal efficiency which was actually there was a false economy in it so I think you can get very caught up in putting the tech first rather than saying what's the thing that annoys the client the most and then what's the potential solution to that that might be something that which is cutting edge technology or it might be you know something really simple uh, technologically but something which you've not been practicing historically if you had one piece of advice then to give to somebody who wants to do law differently what would your advice be i feel that you have to find like-minded people who are prepared to challenge the very good training and habits which you've worked up over a long period of time and I feel that going out on my own with Polaris was initially a very quite an isolated experience I come from a very large firm it was a real joy to me to find that there are other people out there people like you who are thinking differently about the way that law can be practiced connecting with those people exchanging ideas and also in trying to trying to work with those like-minded people whether they come on as employees or colleagues or partners or even if you're just sitting down and having a coffee with people who are doing really interesting work in other parts of the legal fraternity or outside it's been one of the great joys for me in connecting with people who are committed to practicing differently recognizing the need for change and everyone is on a different pathway there there are some wild ideas that are going on in other pockets of the legal industry which which aren't going to be for us but Finding that community and that ecosystem who has that appetite for change, I think is where the gold is. Normally that would be my last question, but I feel like I need to follow up for the benefit of the listeners with asking, where did you go to find those people? If someone's out there who has maybe just set out on their own and they are feeling lonely because it can be a lonely place, where did you go to find the like-minded people? Yeah, so going up to the legal tech conference, I didn't come away with any of the tech, <laughs> but um, I met some people who were, um, you know, similarly minded to me. Yes. And having the chance to 
meet with those people. So some of the first people who I contacted or who I bumped into were the folks at Hive Legal and I'd heard that they were doing some really interesting stuff. And it kind of grew from there. I would have a chat to someone like Mel Lyon who's doing really interesting work with Hive and she would say, oh, you should absolutely meet this person who has a similar view or has a totally different approach to this kind of stuff. I also made a bit of a list. So when I started the practice, I thought, who are the people who I'd really love to hear from who are approaching things differently? Sometimes that were people who are looking at costs really differently. So in Victoria, Liz Harris and the Inovum people are doing some fascinating work on fixed fee stuff. And so I'd have a coffee with them or approach them and hear a bit about what they were doing. But as you grow and as you kind of express that interest, I think people find you too and you kind of magnetise towards people who might not share the same ideas. Like I think it's nice for that kind of cross-pollination to happen, but at least share a view about both the starting point and the fact that things need to change. Mm. I think that's been some of the most fun I've had in starting Polaris. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Nick. Really enjoyed talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Lucy. That's all from Doing Law Differently today. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, I would love to ask two favours from you. First, please tell your friends. If you know of someone who you think might enjoy listening to the podcast or might learn something from one of my guests, I'd love it if you could share the episode with them. And the other thing I would love to ask is if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a rating and review. I love hearing what people think about the show and it really helps other people to find out about the podcast as well. See you next time. Bye.